so Gareth, before we start, I have, I have a good story for you. I have a good tale. A tale. So, okay. so my uh, my PS4 for for years has been reggae skeleton themed. Um, <laughs> skeletons that are Rastafari and live in Jamaica. And I have an, I have a an avatar that I paid real human money for, which is a skeleton wearing a a little the the beanie thing. I don't know what it's called, and I don't want to fuck up the name. So you know what I'm talking about. I, I know yeah. what you're talking. Yeah, the, the one that Homer wears in that one episode of Simpsons where he goes to the Lollapalooza and he yeah. puts on a Rastafari hat, and everyone hates him. Yeah, because it's supposed yeah. to hold dreads for people who who should have dreads, but in the case of white people or skeletons, there are no dreads. Obviously, okay. yeah. Um. Uh, and uh, I had purchased a uh, a, a theme for the PS4, which was also a series of dancing skeletons in front of a reggae-themed snack bar uh, that played incredibly annoying music as they swirled about and danced. Mm -hmm. And I left that there. Again, paid human money for that. And uh, I left it like that for, for about four years. And recently, recently, I changed it because I saw available for sale for the low price of $4 a remember 911 theme <laughs> it shows the skyline of new york sands the twin towers and it has 911 in huge block letters with a waving american flag behind them so that you know it's like so it's like their american flag numbers uh and letters for remember 911 but you know it's billowing and it plays gentle not very good country music in the background as as it billows and oh, wow. uh now whenever whenever i'm uh hosting friends and uh we're sitting around you know just chatting by the coffee table and i feel that the people in the home aren't adequately remembering 9-11 i will boot <laughs> up the ps4 and i will i will let it go to standby so that the country music plays and remember 9-11 shows up on my obnoxiously large television just you know just as an, an additional part of of the dinner party just a big nice. screen that says remember 9-11 <laughs> I think get... I assume that was what all American homes were like. Yeah. <laughs> just like pictures of it everywhere. It's always on TV, always talking about it. On the obnoxiously large TV, yeah. It's yeah. sort of like how you have the Queen. We have 9-11. <laughs> we barely have the Queen. I, I, I go weeks without even remembering we have a monarchy. But you should not go minutes without remembering 9-11. If you do, <laughs> you pretty much. And fun 9-11 fact for everyone at home. Did you know that 9-11, September 11th, 2001, was also the release date of Jay-Z's The Blueprint? Nice. Also, uh, Slayer's God Hates Us All. Um, That's true. Jimmy Eats World, Jimmy Eats World's Blue, uh, Bleed American, Agrophobic Nosebleeds, um, Frozen Corpse Stuff with Dope. Uh, I, have, I have a mixtape of 9-11 released music. But I, I bring this up because where is Jay-Z from? New York. Mm-hmm. Where did 9-11 happen, Gareth? Shit. <laughs> Whoa. Okay. We've Remember 9-11 is actually... And how rich is Jay-Z? Like, rich enough to easily pull off 10 9-11s, I assume. So what I'm saying is... We've stumbled across perhaps the most effective ad campaign for a piece of art 
in all of modern history. That kind of segues very nicely into our guest here. <laughs> uh, it, it actually does. It actually does. For once, a segue has been earned. Um, we are on the, the call, on the Discord, with Annie Kelly of the UK, of my former alma mater, the University of East Anglia. The, my former alma mater, Britain. What? <laughs> yeah, you graduated from Britain and became Canadian. Okay, fine. I, I, I'm, I'm not Canadian. I'm a Canadian Jew. Um, ah, whatever. You flunked uh, out of Canada. Anyway, uh, <laughs> she is also the U official UK correspondent for the QAnon Anonymous podcast. A fellow uh, soldier in the podcasting wars. It's true. I'm a podcaster and I've just got Discord for this very cool. So I'm now officially a gamer as well. Yeah. Well, we've ruined you. We're tripping down that rabbit hole. It's a you're, slippery slope. Everyone warned me. You're unsuitable for marriage now. <laughs> and we'll have to go to a nunnery. Um, oh, if only. I, I would go to a monastery or nunnery in a second. If oh, yeah. No, if it was like a secular monastery. Um, yeah, no. Which I guess I've... is podcasting. But, um, I think I could pretend to be religious for the full remainder of my life in order to be in a monastery. I think I'm constantly just one bad Tinder date away from joining a convent. Mm. I wonder, yeah, there must be some in Norwich, right? Because you got Julian of Norwich right there. No, yeah, that's true, actually. I don't know. I don't know where all the convents are at. Apart from the ones I did actually go to convent school. So apart well, from those ones, yeah. Cool. <laughs> so, yeah, and, and Julian of Norwich was an anchorite, so you could just stay in your room. It that kind of sounds achieved, so good. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I know I think, the British. Oh, you go on. I was just saying that. Yeah, I've it's the 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 life of an anchorite has always sounded like pretty good. You kind of wonder how what you would have to do to. Surely, loads of women wanted to be anchorites. Do you know? Um, yeah, you have to. I, I, you have to imagine that you had to. I don't know. Swing it somehow. Um, but you know, whenever you kind of have those sorts of thoughts of like, oh, I wonder what my life would be like if I was a medieval peasant. I'd always just go straight to the straight to the convent, become an anchorite, have people feed me through a door. It sounds quite good. Oh, yeah. Uh, Britain, Britain does have a lot of those monasteries that are just built on, like, a rock in the middle of the sea. So uh, I imagine those would be pretty tight to live on. Probably pretty cold. Um, yeah. Wet all the time. Going to be a lot of sea spray in those. I'm, but my, my flat is cold and wet right now, do you know? Yeah, same. and I'm not even living a contemplative life with God. Yeah, and I'm, I, yeah. I would go to the monastery where they brew buckfast and oh, drink a yeah. bunch of buckfast <laughs> and um, get get Larry the, the party monastery. Yeah, get get proper aggro with all the other monks while we brew buckfast together in order to increase knife crime in Glasgow. That's <laughs> that's that sounds like a, a useful life. I think God approves of uh, yeah. knives. 
that leads, I think, to a good thought <laughs> experiment. Um, why was God so pissed at Cain if no one had ever died before? Wait, what? <laughs> like, I've been thinking about this recently. Like, Cain and Abel, right? Yeah. You know how he brains his brother? Yeah. Well, no one had ever died before, so I think it's a little rude to be mad at Cain for being the first one to kill when he had, he had no way of he knowing no how idea. it happened. <laughs> he's like, I'm just mad at Abel. I'm going to hit him with a rock. And then he's like, all right, Abel, you can get up now. A yeah. Abel? Yeah, I, I guess it's kind of like those <laughs> those weird cases where like children like get get put on trial and stuff and you kind of have to argue that as a child they don't have the understanding of the finality of death so it doesn't it's really like, count as murder it's, only god knew what dying was and so he's just sitting there watching at no point is he like hey don't hit him with a rock he'll die yeah I he's mean, just like i want to see how this pans out i don't know maybe there's like a deleted scene you know where he does explain what what hitting someone with a rock will do that's the only way i can you know it's not really <laughs> Wrecked on the Bible to make it make sense. <laughs> Otherwise, it's just there's just a massive plot hole really early on. He hits but, him with a rock once, and God's like, "No, don't you do that again, or you'll die." And he'd be like, "I don't know what that is." And he hits him with a rock a second time. <laughs> exactly. So, uh, on a talking religious about the Bible, talking about the Bible on a religious note, uh, we read the Testaments, um, and we read it because we. It's it's kind of like the closest... obligated to <laughs> kind of yeah yeah it's basically a summer blockbuster in book form it, it's like going yeah. to going to watch Avengers Endgame I kind of had to sat there for four hours needing to pee for like three hours of it it was it was just uh, gross and boring I hated it um, and but it's it's like if Avengers Endgame also won an Oscar because. The Testaments got given a Booker Prize. Like, got given like fifty percent of a Booker Prize. Well, it's also like it's also like if Avengers Endgame was nominated for an Oscar before it came out. Yeah, which I guarantee you, someone on Twitter who is very angry at um, Martin Scorsese has probably suggested at some point. Oh, did you hear Francis Ford Coppola also recently came out swinging against uh, Marvel? And that's Good. a guy who's even harder to uh, to critique because that motherfucker made Apocalypse Now. Yeah, which has one scene in it which is in so much better than every action scene in every Marvel movie ever made because it's real. Those are actual helicopters and actual explosions. I mean, it's it's Take literally a, a perfect Marvel. movie. So yeah, it is. He did also do Bram Stoker's Dracula, though. That's true. Well, that yeah, film is a... baller. I, I like Brad Stoker's Dracula, okay? It's got Dracula in it. It's literally <laughs> the most Dracula you're going to get on film. That's all right, remember that... Way. All right, Dracula cast. Remember that time when he threw a sword at a cross and it uh, the cross is made of stone and yet it stabbed the cross and then blood came out of the cross and uh, Dracula knelt down licking at the blood because he was so mad and swore vengeance to God and that's how he became vampire? Yeah, that was fucking sick. That that like, was, it's no, literally uh, the sickest thing I've ever seen. Like yeah. absolutely the number one. <laughs> yeah, so fucking cool. Like and what well, like Ant-Man is going to do that? No, he's not. So, <laughs> so Francis Ford Coppola can very easily critique the entire Marvel universe and even all the comics, even the ones Jack Kirby wrote. 
That fucking armor that Dracula wears? Yeah. That looks like human meat? I know. Yeah. And oh, you're telling me Iron Man is cooler than that? No. 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 I, <laughs> no. Iron He's Man a... is the only Marvel movie I've seen. That's the fine. First one? That's... I, the first, no, I tell a lie. I saw two in the cinema, and I remember it was the first time I was a teenager. It was the first time I've ever felt so bored watching a film that like I was in pain. Have you ever had that when you're watching a movie when it like it actually hurts yeah. that it's so boring? And I kept on just wanting to get up and leave. And I just sort of vowed never to watch any more of them after that. You and suddenly had and I don't really like, feel like I've missed out. You had like a wave of death consciousness in the theater. You're like, wow, I'm gonna die someday. And these are two hours that I'm just not gonna <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Cause you know when you're a teenager, like I I don't know, when you're a teenager, I think you you have a much higher tolerance for bad movies, like you're still in that kind of childlike stage where like everything's a bit fun and new and stuff. And it was my first time thinking like, oh, I could do something else. I don't have to be watching this movie. Yeah. Um, just for the folks at home, you do actually have to be listening to this podcast. You can't That's go and true. do other things. You, you don't yeah, go no, outside. That sounds mandatory. Yeah. You, uh, you have to like listen to this podcast and post about it. And join our Patreon. Yeah, you, you can't, can't even do anything things. else while you're listening to the podcast. You just yeah. have to sit here and listen to it. If you're inside, go it. If you're outside, go inside and turn the lights off. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so anyway, so testaments, right? So yeah, we we all knew it was going to be huge when it was announced last year. It's it, yeah, it's it's the sequel to a book that was very big back in the day, 1985. The TV show is as big as you know a hulu show is going to get because it's on hulu and um which but, means I mean, a lot of people that, just be wanted it. yeah i mean it's pretty iconic kylie jenny jenner dressed as handmaids for her 21st birthday party or something like that yeah. do you see that yeah and you know there was still like um people at protests are still dressed up as handmaids there was a huge uh, thing at the london book fair yeah, where it's, they, it's, they it's an iconic look them. exactly yeah and that came for a tv show not kind of it was a description from the book but it's kind of from the tv show mainly and it's such it's such a strange thing because the book is so the handmaid's tale is such a well-respected story both in literary and genre space and has been since it came out like it's a really well-beloved book um Mm -hmm. and it's sort of like it's good it's one of those rite of passage books where you're sort of Mm -hmm. half expected to have finished reading it by by the end of your undergrad where it's it's inexplicable that someone would get say like a humanities degree and has like no like understanding of the book at all or has never heard of it or something like that and then it was like this very poorly kept secret of of the literary world for for this long stretch and then um inexplicably became a tv show which i don't think anyone um who'd read it was like i don't want to watch this happen weekly no. for an hour at a time that sounds that sounds miserable like I, and it really uh, was i try i tried to watch a few episodes of it and i was just like i actually just can't do this like yeah, yeah it's great there are some things that just i don't know just don't really translate to screen and i sort of think like uh that brutality which is sort of hinted at very well in the book um just becomes like just quite I don't know, quite vile and almost like a bit prurient in the TV mm. show. Um, I couldn't watch it. 
Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it's almost like watching Amistad like once a week. Like every week I watch Amistad <laughs> and you're like the movie about the slave ship. And they're like, mm hmm. Every week. <laughs> there are people who want to woke signal enough that they will do that. We just need to put it out there that uh, to be truly woke, you need to watch Amistad every week. <laughs> but um, yeah, so the Testaments, uh, so it's split into three, three stories. One of them is uh, Aunt Lydia. That was the, that was a really good one. Um, she was a character in the original. I actually listened to this on audiobook, so I was. It was again read by Anne Dowd, who plays her in the TV show. She's very good. Yeah, that actually sounds pretty good. Yeah, it, it was a really good audiobook. Um, very well done. And um, there's another. There's two other girls who are both the same age. Um, I don't want to spoil it, but it's kind of obvious who their mother is if you've read the um, if you read the other ones or seen this TV show. Um, oh, it also has a hybrid continuity where you'll only really get all of it if you've watched, if you read the original book and watched the TV show. So, um, yeah, I guess you gotta you, you gotta just... slog through. How many seasons of it is there now? I think there must be like one three. to the third, aren't we? Yeah, yeah. And I think they announced that like the fourth season is going to be the last one or the th something like that. So that, that leads to a, uh, a funny issue about the Testaments, which is that the show is very nearly at the end of the material that's in the book. They've been stretching it out, but there, you know, there are limits. And so uh, the Testaments had one of the fastest fucking turnarounds I've seen for a novel where it was announced that a sequel to The Handmaid's Tale was in production from Margaret Atwood as a book right around when the show was coming up to the end of the material in the book, uh, in the first book. Um, and that, uh, rubbed just about everyone the wrong way. I think I don't, it, it's weird because I saw that it got shortlisted for the booker immediately, but I don't remember seeing any positive press about this whatsoever. Once it was announced, I think pretty much everyone was on the same page of like, Oh, this is, the crass commercialization. This is like the Marvel movieization of The Handmaid's Tale, which is um, so like insanely vile on a certain end that we're turning this extremely um, a book that's about a, a very powerful book about the real violence. Uh, well, obviously, a dramatized version of the real violence that that women face in Western society is going to get turned into the big like commercial spectacle that capitalism demands all art become. Um, and oh, of course, it's going to be a sequel, and of course, it's going to pick up plot threads that are a bit from the book, so that n no one has said anything. But you know, oh, if they want to make a couple more seasons, they have more raw material, and it. Mm it seemed like pretty much everyone's like, this is a really gross kind of, uh, and then, and then, and then press copies came out and, uh, it's pretty good. Yeah. It's not bad. Is it? No, I mean, it's like, it's, I, it's at, at very worst. It's a decent YA novel. Um, I had such low expectations. I was walking in like incredibly mm. cynical. Yeah, I mean, it's just the fact that, like, Margaret Atwood is a good writer, you know? I, I definitely don't think it deserves a Booker Prize. I agree. I think the, um, well, we can actually get to a point about that in a second, because apparently even the Booker people agreed, but... <laughs> really? Oh, okay, I haven't heard about this. Uh, yeah, I mean... Do you know what the, I, do you know what the thing was with them splitting the Booker Prize? I 
So that's what I was going to bring up. That's oh, okay. um, sorry. So I'm ruining your segue. The, oh no, no, you you, you don't have <laughs> to apologize. We don't. We we keep it raw here on <laughs> Death Sentence. You're getting the real shit. We're not this reading is, this. Script. Is jazz. This is I don't, this is like Charlie Parker and Coltrane just riffing. Do you think Gareth would allow me to talk about Mr. Cocaine Toilet if no. we had a script? No, that would get cut. The amount of time that I that I interrogate all British guests about Blobby and how they allowed Blobby to happen you and mean how Mr. Blobby, Mr. Blobby, yes, Mr. Blobby. Yes. Yeah. Mr. Blobby. Call, call, call him by his full name, please. Yeah. <laughs> you go to medical Blobby medical school, <laughs> uh, but um, Doctor yeah. Blobby. <laughs> I'd allow uh, Dr. Bobby to, to carry out a surgery on me. He'd fill me <laughs> with balloon animals and gunk. Anyway, <laughs> so the other half of the Booker Prize <laughs> has gone to uh, Bernardine Evaristo, uh, who uh, is a quite well-established novelist. I, I personally haven't heard of her. She's she's done a lot of work over the last like few decades. She's got about eight books out. Uh, she was even a fellow at uh, University of East Anglia for a while. Um, so yeah, she's uh, written a book called uh, "Girl, Woman, Other," and um, it's a uh, twelve interconnected stories about mostly black women in the UK over a series of decades. Um, I've I haven't read it. I may never read it. Read it, but um, it seems like the kind of thing that you know, um, if it's very well written, it'll it'll win prizes because it's it. From what I've heard, it's very good. And it deserves to be there. And it that sort of answers, I think, the question that everyone had when it got noted that this was shortlisted for the Booker. It caused a little bit of a kerfluffle in um, in the literary world because it's everyone reading it as as crassly as possible of like, oh, well, we know why this exists. Margaret Atwood isn't spontaneously writing a sequel to The Handmaid's Tale 30 years later because she simply wants to. If she wanted to, she would have done this at some point mm. in the intervening time. She's mm. dropping it now when the show is big because it's capitalizing on a moment. And so then mm. the thought that, oh, it gets shortlisted for a booker. It's like, oh, that's how fucking quaint, right? Um, but then the fact that the booker people announced like, oh, we're, we're going to do a split prize um, almost felt like triage to me. Um, obviously, they, they the ballots are secret, so... Um, we don't necessarily know, but it did seem like that was their way of going like this. Because also giving a giving a literary prize to a sequel of a book that feels. that This gets to a, a textual critique of the Testaments at no point in the Testaments that I feel that it earned a right to exist, which is a weird thing to say about art in general. But mm -hmm. it's more that if this were part of The Handmaid's Tale. If The Handmaid's Tale yeah. were simply twice as long, I, I would feel satisfied. None of the material here feels out of place. It feels like it flushes out The Handmaid's Tale quite well. There's good character moments. I mean, she's a strong writer. She knows how to dive into a character's mind, their setting, their circumstance, and resonate with the world that you're reading from. So it's like, in terms of all the craft elements, there's nothing wrong with the Testaments. But in terms of 30 years later, someone might be asked to pay 30 bucks for this in hardback to read the equivalent of what feels like Handmaid's Tale DLC. Um, <laughs> that that rubs me a little bit the wrong way. Like if it was an omnibus version, I'd be like, totally fine. I think I think this is 
quite worthy of being right next to the handmaid's tale but um so it was almost like they went yeah no this book is the one that actually won the booker prize and this one is the one that i mean you know because the booker prize is still funded by 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 you know an arms dealer so you know they're (laughs) (laughs) yep the little thing we're not supposed to say, which is that um, the Booker Prize in general is the um, the whitewashing of blood off the hands of the people who uh, who fund it. Yep. Oh my god, I had no idea. Oh yeah, yeah. if you look into the people who um, pay for the prize for the Booker Prize, it's a bunch of um, basically the British equivalent of like Northrop Grumman and Lockheed Martin and shit like mm. that, and it's yeah. their way to like culture wash their own malfeasance. Oh my mm. god! Yeah, like yeah. a lot of prizes. I'm, you I'm getting out. black pills. I didn't expect <laughs> it. That's there's there have been a handful of writers who've declined the Booker Prize on the back of um, on the back of that. Uh, yeah, good for the them. Idea, it was for years the Costa Prize, and that was like that's a, just a coffee chain. That's yeah, the Starbucks Prize. But um, yeah, there's there's some dodgy um, uh, there's some dodgy associations um i mean it it's called the book prize after a wholesale food operator who like supplies stuff to tesco but um behind that and behind that and you know and um the investment group the man group which is a cool name for a group (laughs) these are just the regular man group not the blue man group (laughs) um they make sugar so um but also yeah there's uh there's a bunch of other dodgy people. Dark who are, money. Yeah. And it's also one of the world's richest literary prizes at, at like, um, I think it's, yeah, 50 grand, which is now split between someone who probably would like that and someone who definitely doesn't need that because she's probably got like a five, uh, seven figure advance for the Testament plus all the TV residuals plus like, I don't know. Uh, she probably got points on the sexy sexy handmade uniforms from um, <laughs> the Halloween. Plus we have the slight political issue of we tend to use e- even these like, because unfortunately a lot of prize money in the literary world uh, or not even just the literary world and like the art world in general is unfortunately money that comes from really gross places. If not directly then very obviously indirectly. Um, but putting those moral qualms aside temporarily as difficult as that may be for, for certain uh, more radical art artists, we tend to use them as a way to break voices for people. Like you tend not to, I, I don't know, no one, no one's going to dig up like John Updike and give him a push cart. Even if yeah. we unearth something new, there's no need. That's the, it feels like a waste. You mm, use that yeah. to highlight some new talent. Like when Colson Whitehead won a bunch of prizes for the Underground Railroad. He'd been a writer for a while, but that was the thing that thrust him to being on front stands in Barnes and Noble and moving shitloads of hardback units. Um, which yeah, you know, yeah. let let us not forget. This is the job of the people who write books. You know, they they do it for a living. So so that kind of career advancement is a huge deal. So then the thought of like, yeah, we're going to use the Booker to highlight unknown Canadian author Margaret Atwood. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, they did that in twenty. They did that last year. Anna Burns Milkman. No one had heard of. No one had heard of the book uh, previous to that. Uh, George Saunders. They kind of. He was kind of semi-famous, but only as like a literary novelist. Um, yeah, there's a lot of people that kind of broke their careers, and they're kind of big people now. Yeah, like Mar- Marlon James. 
got 2015 for history of seven killings and brilliant book yeah brilliant and he's now got enough clout that he can write a free um like a fantasy saga with goblins in it which was amazing it's probably my favorite book of the year it's such a good film (laughs) such a good um, book but uh yeah so yeah i can see why people are pissed off at this um and it'd be easy to be pissed off if this book was like truly terrible i don't think it's I, i think it's pretty bad in a lot of places and especially the the revelations of the like the um the plot twists are telegraphed to hell and i doubt anyone reading this will not guess who the mother of the two uh teenage characters is yeah um, it's one of those like all of all of the character moments i think were really solid and really powerful and illustrate like we forget sometimes in the modern image of margaret atwood because on one end the handmaid's tale is pushed in um mainstream space but in her more her bigger contemporary work was the mad adam trilogy um hmm. and which I, I brilliant books i love those books a lot but we ignore sometimes that she spent a long time writing just very straightforward literary fiction i say ignore but no one no one it ignores cat's eye. We all know cat's eye exists. It's, it's a great book and everyone loves it. But, um, uh, but when she's living in those moments, I think that this book is quite successful. I think that, you know, we have these nice rich character moments, um, just them rolling over thoughts, rolling over events of their lives. And I'm like, Oh, this is, this is so good. And if only the book had stayed that way, but then standard, uh, it almost felt like Hollywood plot pacing where it was like about halfway through the book. It's like, okay, we've done enough of that literary bullshit. Let's give you that plot baby. And all of yeah. it's bad. Like just, it's just bad. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it did feel like a YA novel. I don't want to use that as like a prerogative because there are some really decent ones. I mean, a YA novel like Harry Potter, Hunger Games, you know, like the, the Twilight, the big ones. It felt like yeah. one of those big ones, not like the, like other ones, like uh, the Hate You Give or something, where they're, they're slightly better and they've got more literary mm. thrust in them. If it, it felt like a, you know, um, and yeah, there were. Yeah, even I think some... dystopia has sort of become such a YA theme that you think you really have yeah. to try very hard, like uh, not to make your dystopia, uh, like uh, I suppose, kind of fall into that kind of YA trap. Mm. Um, yeah. Especially I mean, if you're, that is if you're about, not intending to write a YA novel. Yeah. Obviously, if you are, then that's fine. Yeah, I mean, especially when you're writing about teenage characters and you're using yeah. using tropes like um, the uh, like the family romance of wait that those aren't my real parents. My real <sighs> parents are actually these really really important people, and I'm actually yeah. a special child of destiny, <laughs> which is basically the plot for one of the characters. And right, she also learns to become a deadly kung fu artist in about two days and yeah it's it, there's mm. yeah basically yeah what landon said when the when the plot kicks in it's um yeah it's yeah it's 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 a blockbuster action movie because like we have we have some plot moments within the handmaid's tale um both in the book and the show of the children who are attempted to be stolen away to canada to save them from from basically the misogynistic uh breed farming that they would endure in in the city that they're in and the version of america that's presented and it's left somewhat open-ended because there's some success and some not and the notion that this book picks up on those threads of here's some girls that 
made it out and some that didn't, it's it sets itself up very strongly for just like a pained, non-dramatic parallel of just the lives mm -hmm. of two people. And you're like, oh, that sounds like a really rich foundation for a nice literary story. Or not nice, actually, really horrible literary story, <laughs> but a powerful one. Um, yeah. Yeah, then it's like, oh, I got to learn Kung Fu. And normally I, I love I love dumb shit. I've read a fuckload of Star Wars novels. I But I'm like, why why here? Why now? Like, why is this book doing that? Why? Because you read The Handmaid's Tale and that's not really present so much. Yeah, The Handmaid's Tale like, is like just, this is my day. I go around, I hide my eyes from men. I get some oranges maybe. Then I come home and bad things happen to me. I mean, we have that classic poll quote from Margaret Atwood. For the longest time, she refused to acknowledge that one, it was a science fiction novel, or that two, she was a science fiction or genre writer, because part of it was snobbish, literary snobbishness at the time, but a little bit of it was somewhat fair, where she was saying, like, well, I my concerns in the book aren't about any of the genre elements that's a way to create an allegorical space to talk about the literary aspects of just the lives of these characters and it's like okay well sci-fi novels can do that too but whatever that that's semantics okay and then this one was like nah i've decided that i've read a whole i've watched a lot of marvel movies and i gotta have <laughs> the uh <sighs> mm. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I, I, I think she objected to the science fiction label on the grounds that she wasn't, that nothing that she wrote about didn't happen to women somewhere. Mm, yeah. I think I, I'm probably bastardizing the quote a bit. No, no, I um, think that's 100% that's accurate that she said that. that. Um, yeah. Um, again, yeah, I don't really know if that makes it not science fiction to be like, but really, all of no. it is happening at once. <laughs> here that sort of seems very much yeah in the future um, <laughs> like, <but yeah>. I'm, <laughs> in the future I'm, yeah <laughs> it's like uh well i mean i i mean there's the standard responses to her comment there that i think even now she would probably accept which is like you know kobo uh kobe abe was a science fiction writer and he wrote like the woman in the dunes and stuff and that's not really i mean we've accepted that large stretches of like Kafka and Borges belong in science fictional or fantasy writing as well. We've just, but whatever, yeah. e even she would be like, okay, yeah, I, I was being flippant. I just meant that I wasn't writing a space opera. Um, mm. But yeah. yeah. And then this book just sort of doubles down on all, all of the worst impulses that she used to be so critical of. And on one hand, it's endearing that like she's been writing a YA comic called um, like, angel cat or like oh angel cat bird angel yeah, cat bird that. and i'm like yeah. i don't really i flip through it i'm like i don't really like it but you know she's opening up experimenting with different styles she obviously has a mad adam trilogy which is a re really really solid set of books but it's like you don't and i know you're popular now margaret but you don't have to write garbage the first half of this book is good and then it's like you decided that it needed to be shitty the Ooh. first half is the is the Aunt Lydia segment, I'm guessing, and then um, no, they're all um, put into kind of interspersed okay. all the way through. Oh, I see. But there's yeah. yeah, I mean, the first half is kind of like these. This is our lives. There's one who's an, like an aunt, who's like a pretty powerful political figure, yeah. but she's a woman in this horrible misogynistic society. And I had some critiques about that whole thing. But and then mm. there's um, Agnes, who's a woman, who's a 
a young girl growing up in Gilead, and then Daisy, who's a young girl growing up in Canada, um, which isn't like Gilead. It's just Canada. Um, and um, yeah, so those are all interspersed, and they did done pretty well. Um, the, the Aunt Lady of Bits are easily the best part, because mm. she's just a, a good character. And yeah, she, yeah I she's think... like a villain in the first book, and then you realize, oh, wait, she's actually been faking the whole thing that's this whole time yeah she definitely seemed like one of the most interesting characters in the first book um Mm. in the handmaid's tale which admittedly i've only i read back when i was 16 or 17 so i don't have the clearest memory of it that's about Uh, the right time to 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 read it i think yeah my my mum insisted i read it actually (laughs) wow Um, she's like pre-woke my mum yeah yeah <laughs> yeah well i remember she, she said Ren made me read it and then she said you know do you think it could happen here um and i remember thinking no not really um but now everyone's protesting in handmade costumes and stuff like that so yeah i mean i i don't really i don't really like the kind of um uh, the sort of protest language that has risen up around it um no yeah i'm not feeling yeah. either um, but, yeah, I'm, I want to get onto that to, to that stuff and and to the it couldn't happen here thing in kind of part two. Okay, that's kind of there's what, there's yeah. a whole body of critique that can be wielded against. Uh... <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. The, so let's 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 play some music first. Um, so we we barely prepared music for this episode, but um, I'm gonna jump in and say that the music we're gonna play is gonna be. The song Protection from Spiritual Instinct by Alsay, or Alceste, as some people call them. Um, they're from France. People who, people who pronounce the T for this band are fucking idiots. I'm just going to say it. They're French. Yeah. The EST, you never pronounce the T at the end yeah. or the S. Really? It's, yeah, it's just Alsay. Like, how the. Whatever. That's That's me being pedantic but it's like we have yeah. enough bands in the metal world that have really weird languages behind them that are not the native l- tongue of whoever is listening to them and we all learn how to say their names and then for this one for whatever reason no hmm. yeah well see also people who call sun sunno you can't pronounce yeah, it zero whack. yeah that's whack you, you're false if you do that that but, band uh, has been out for 20 fucking years you've learned how to say it i guarantee you <laughs> <laughs> But um, yeah, so Al- Alcest are kind of a big deal because they pretty much invented the whole black gaze thing. Um, uh, Niche, the mo- main guy, is guested on Death Heaven. Uh, he's toured with Death Heaven too. They're, they're a big deal because they they were the first people in kind of like 2005 when Le Secret came out. He realized, you know, you don't have to be a corpse painted weirdo incel basement dwelling freak to play black metal you can like that and like my bloody valentine at the same time he he even put out a record through the project called shelter which a lot of uh, thankfully it's come back around for a certain number of fans it got disavowed because it's not metal at all it's just a dream pop album but it's a very very beautiful dream pop album and so and kind of kadama and um his previous one which was 2016 it feels like it was really recent but uh yeah that was a there's some lovely shoegazy dream poppy moments on there. But this new one's really heavy. It's 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 really good. Yeah, it's it's yeah, kind of returned to heaviness. 
I got a it's promo. Cool. It's all. Oh, it's good. It's good. Yeah. There's still there's still clean singing. He's a very nice vocalist. But uh, yeah, so here's um, yeah here's Alce with protection uh, off their album Spiritual Instinct.
Sells Alsace uh, from Paris, France. Um, yeah, and new al- new album is apparently going to be really good. So, yeah, 2019 has been a crazy year. We don't need more good music, but you know, they're just loading us up at the end of the year just to make 2019 best of lists really difficult, which are going to be virtually impossible this year. Um, well, probably not. It's just going to be blood incantation. Um, but anyway, so one of the big reasons we had Annie here on, apart from her posting skills, which are first rate, <laughs> um, honestly, one of my oldest oldest follows on Twitter. Um, I, I'm not sure. Really? How, yeah, I, I I don't know. Like, no, no offense to you, but I don't know exactly how I came across you. But um, yeah, I followed you for like like first hundred people I followed. Oh, wow. Like you and Stephen Fry. Um, <laughs> the two posting giants. Yeah. He he was huge on Twitter for a long time. He and, was, uh, but then I, I toppled him. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah. So one of the reasons you're on here is um, you're doing a, a PhD and you've written for, it was the New York Times? Yes. The New York Times about about misogyny. Can you tell us a little bit more about like the the general thrust of uh, of your work at the moment? Yeah, sure. So um, I look at uh, anti feminist websites, um, and the I suppose um, discourses, the rhetoric that they use. Um, specifically, I'm very interested in what makes people stay. Um, because we have an internet with thousands and thousands of options. Um, and even the anti-feminist internet itself um, uh, is, you know, unfortunately, absolutely huge. It's a huge network. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess I am interested in uh, why anti-feminist users form different uh, specific attachments to uh, specific websites. Um, what it is about that site in particular um, that keeps them coming back, essentially. Um, and I suppose around the kind of, um, broader kind of community sort of that forms around anti-feminism, um, which kind of in the process of me studying it has sort of turned into, um, I suppose at least a branch of the alt-right. Um, when I first began studying it or not even studying, I suppose, because I was just a bit of a hobbyist. Um, when I first started looking at it, it just interested me. Um, these were they, they were sort of more commonly known as the manosphere. Um, this kind of loose um, association of websites, which were uh, some were kind of pickup artists, um, some were um, men's rights activists, um, and they weren't very they weren't particularly connected with one another. They were all more kind of blogs um and in that time i've sort of watched this kind of early community uh go online um go on social media um and sort of create quite a coherent um far right movement i suppose um it's become much more radicalized in the time that i've been watching it on topics of race and immigration um and I suppose, started to articulate a kind of fully consistent far-right ethos. Um, 
so even though I began study, studying anti-feminism, it's sort of impossible to separate that from the uh, alt-right as a whole, I suppose, um, because so many, so much of the um, alt-right logics, which we usually typically think of as belonging to um, discourses of race and racism, um, have, I suppose, evolved and expanded through those sites. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of people who pointed out probably quite rightly that you know, the, the alt-right was just an outgrowth of kind of Gamergate and Gamergate mm. was an outgrowth of um, all these you know, pickup artists like mm. you know, Roosh V and Stefan Molyneux and those guys. So, yeah, I mean, one of the reasons I wanted to bring it up in this particular episode is because reading through the testaments and kind of mm. thinking back over the, the, the whole of uh, the Gilead extended universe. Mm. Yeah. The, the misogyny in there seems on one hand. Yeah. It's, it's often quite real and mm. there are places in the world where the, where you know women are stoned to death and all that mm. stuff goes on. And there's a lot of hypocrisy where people will show a public face of being like a major religious figure, but then there'll actually be, you know, doing terrible things to their, their handmaids or equivalent in real life. But what isn't in Gilead, but is a major thing in real life, is kind of ironic, shitposty, uh, very online, <laughs> mm. like centered around young men. Mm. Yeah, very online young men, where there'll be, like, you can't imagine anyone in Gilead giving a fuck about anime or gaming mm. and um and a figure like donald trump would who is like i'm gonna ask you about trump in a minute but mm. you couldn't imagine him in gilead at all like no. he would be he would be one of the first people stoned to death yeah he's such, he's such a baldly crass figure that doesn't cohere to the image that um that is presented by margaret atwood and hits at this is this is where I guess my unique position is being not the only American on the call also discussing a Canadian author who is it clearly places Gilead within America is that this I think plays on a very strange image of America that wasn't exactly true even when The Handmaid's Tale was being made but was meant to play off of um the rising sense of um the religious right that was forming mm -hmm. Um, in the 80s as, as a voting bloc, or it started forming in the late 70s. Um, but by now, the notion that she would extend it in this manner in 2019 when access to the social image of the American right wing, which it, if we don't delude ourselves, something like Gamergate, which had uh, worldwide tendrils, was centered and began in america the alt-right mm -hmm. was centered and began in america even though it has worldwide presence now mm -hmm. um we we have this completely different image of what um hatred of women and systematized brutalization of women looks like not only in america but in the world that's also th the secondary thing that strikes me as um Not not just inauthentic, but like it's like a self-preserving aspect of her continuing to make 
because she, she she wrote this over the past like two years. And if mm -hmm. you lived in or around Canada, the notion that Canada is somehow a bastion of rights for women compared to uh, the scalding wastes of America doesn't doesn't make any sense whatsoever. I mean, we're watching the same rightward shift mm -hmm. of the Overton window in America, in the UK, in Canada. Mm -hmm. Uh, in all of continental Europe, we're seeing that same shift in Japan. We're seeing that shift, or we saw that shift in Korea. Korea is actually shifting back left now. We see that rightward shift in India, like in Brazil. like it. So the notion of making it like uh, America, that crass, they're built on this religious hypocrisy and they hate women. It feels more and more evasive to the point of being useless in 2019. Mm. It does seem, um, I suppose, very of a different time to conceive of um, a, a kind of systemized um, or systematic misogyny or a state-endorsed misogyny um, that can only be conceived of as theocratic. Do you know? Yeah. Um, it sort of seems, I, I think it seems like a very old-fashioned understanding of misogyny. Um, yeah. which may have may have felt more prescient when The Handmaid's Tale was released. Um, but certainly, I think, it was a sense that I got um, watching the very few episodes of the um, TV show, it did largely feel outdated already. Yeah, I think it is because yeah, it doesn't it doesn't engage with the kind of crass libidinal hooting and hollering side of misogyny. Well, yeah, I think it's 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 quite a um, I don't know. It seems like quite a sort of um, new atheist kind of understanding of um, yeah religion as kind of responsible for all of these social ills, um, as opposed to. Um, the way I t tend to see religion, which is quite often as a kind of useful discourse that um, people can adopt to justify these ills, um, but certainly not the only one. Yeah, I think that, that that stance that you hold has become much more the common one um, in yeah. inadequate left discourse. And I say yeah. adequate is in literally the bare minimum is this <laughs> understanding that things like misogyny or racism or queer phobia um or, or even classism don't um they don't arise because of the ideologies that we hold of like oh you're religious so now you hate black people that's mm. a really crass mm. and low understanding that we cling to because it simplifies these things it makes mm. the vast equation of where does hateful action um come from mm. become much simpler we don't have to engage with the complexities of psychology of self-preservation and the way that can become self-destructive or destructive to people around us we don't have to deal with power anxiety or where like mm. something like class systems of race or class systems of gender come from a power anxiety of the people in power that is um, self-contradictory because they're already at mm. the top of the food chain but feel the need to further oppress because being at the top of the food chain of their class system still doesn't alleviate the things that they are anxious about. So the thought of, well, if I'm 
more oppressive. Maybe I'll feel less anxiety, which doesn't work and becomes a, a self-cycling. We, so we have this much better understanding that even now is much better at being telegraphed. We even mm. see very young people nabbing this information at like in, in their teens, in their early 20s. Like you, it, it, we're doing a much better job at presenting this as like, mm. you're not like, no, your family's not queer phobic because they love Jesus. They, because there are, there are Christians who aren't queer phobic. There are Muslims who aren't queer phobic. There are, uh, there are Buddhists who aren't classist, um, unlike certain kinds of Tibetan Buddhists. But yeah, and so then to return to a work that seems very much like, oh, um, why does a society hate women? Uh, they read too much Bible. <laughs> yeah, I mean, although I, I'm, it's possible that this is an, an unfair reading um, of the politics of Gilead because um correct me if i'm wrong but doesn't this start with a fertility crisis and yeah it, there's sort of um less less babies are being born or they're being born um but dying there's a higher mm -hmm. infant, infant mortality rate or something like that uh, um, yeah but, but both really there's um yeah fertilization happens less but also there's a lot of like uh yeah yeah death their babies um, um i forget the, the word they use for them in the books um but um yeah yeah basically, so, I mean, kind, of, kind of like children and men basically yeah so it, it sort of becomes that this is so it, it could be argued i suppose um that instead what is actually being shown is that this is a um a a, a population anxiety um which is being masked with the with the rhetoric of religion um one thing I then found quite unconvincing about the the first few episodes of the television show was that it seemed to be almost a race blind population anxiety, mm. um, which almost never happens. Do you know? Yeah, um, in, I mean, in in the books, I don't know if you remember, there there was some like very small um, references to uh, basically all black people being have been genocided. Yeah, that doesn't come up in the show because there's black characters. And it's yeah, it's like totally race blind. There's black aunties and there's black. Um, uh, basically, the oppressors have some are basically racially blind as well. Mm. And it doesn't come up in um, the testaments either. Yeah, I, I mean, it's sort of one of these things. I, I sort of understand why they did it because they, um, you know, presumably wanted to have a diverse cast and representation. But it does ring particularly hollow, I think, when you look at how popular population anxieties. Um, tend to work um which is always it's never just the fear that um you know the um our, you know our nation as a whole is not having enough children it's always the right people aren't having the right enough children yeah. you know which is nearly always coached in the language of eugenics and being engulfed by the other um and stuff like this so it seemed particularly i thought strange that there would be um black handmaids and black aunts and um that it would be a kind of a, a race blind sort of system um mm. which yeah probably possibly i think you know it might be a blind spot of the book really that it doesn't sort of go into particularly how that rhetoric would work in terms of a kind of fertility crisis yeah it it, it is never mentioned in the testaments as far as i know and it's it seems really strange yeah. very briefly in probably because it's like 
you know, if if you're going to have like the complete genocide of all non-white people in mm. the United States continent, then that's kind of the story. You know? Right, right. You don't want to be talking about <laughs> yeah. some, some teenage girls who don't know who their mum is. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, it um, and yeah, I, I and I don't even know if Margaret Atwood is kind of the right person to be telling that story. I mean, she's obviously yeah, she can write this one, but uh, it's a story that's basically like, you know, the the Turner Diaries, but from the other perspective is um, yeah, that would be that would be pretty intense. I can see why she wouldn't we, want to touch that subject. We, uh, I, I, I have a, a slightly more cynical um, read of why that disappeared. And it has to do with right around when the show came up, there were a bunch of um, the bane of our existence, the well-intentioned think piece, um, <laughs> in which people presented The Handmaid's Tale and its handling of race as being insufficient, which... Some of those articles were very, very good. And they mentioned specifically the fact that like, you can't casually intone all, all black people have been genocided and handle it precisely the way that The Handmaid's Tale does, where it doesn't just disappear from the text, but she doesn't do the necessary nudge to make sure that it stays in the mind of the reader. Um, it instead felt more like an incidental like cleaning up detail, <laughs> like, like, uh, like narrative triage. But it seemed as though both she and the showrunners took those critiques to heart. And instead of, say, going, well, part of the intention is saying that we very rarely see something like um, a, like a, a mare-breeding-oriented misogynist decant to society that does not then also take on racial or racist mm -hmm. characteristics. It's very rare that we get like any woman will do kind of view yeah. with this already. Um, uh, and instead of like, oh, well, we need to make that much more abundantly clear that this isn't an incidental detail. This is actually um, it's supposed to be sinister how invisible it is like, oh, and by the way, all people with deformities and all basically a, a American Nazism. Um, mm -hmm. But it seemed as though they flinched, which in a creative world especially in one where you're working already in allegory mm -hmm. the minute that you start self-compromising um the function of your symbol the symbol itself starts falling apart the allegory mm -hmm. starts falling apart to the point where we get the show and it's deconstructed itself to nonsense where you're like okay we have the brutality against women but this has no like a, no material anchor aside from being at a certain point, just depictions of bad things happening to women with like, look, misogyny is bad. And be like, I, I'm not sure that I need to watch the show. Yeah. I, I don't, this, I can get this other ways. Um, and then it cropping up again in the testaments of just being totally, totally gone. Um, mm -hmm. We still don't see any characters that seem like they're um characters of color anytime there's a description of people we don't get any so it's like it's not like we suddenly have people of color existing within the testaments it's just that it's like this is the worst possible way to respond to those kinds of criticisms is just the mm. because like isn't it hasn't that become a joke now that becoming race blind is not the re correct response to being asked to account for racism Mm, yeah like yeah. that's actually the worst one <laughs> yeah. yeah it's 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 a feature of white feminism as 
as typified by women who go out in um, handmade outfits to protests. Like, it would be a more substantial thing to say, like, yeah, women are treated as uh, breeding partners or housemates unless they're people of color, then they're eradicated because they're seen as less than, not even worthy of that. And that would be a disturbing and powerful thing, as opposed to this toothless thing that imagines itself as quite more toothsome of like, no, I'm talking about the suffering of all women, universalized to the point where no woman actually experiences it. <laughs> and you're like, what? And they're like, yeah, learn your lessons. <laughs> you're like, what What lesson, though? I don't know what I'm like. So, so Annie, how, how did that, in real life, that there was a a misogynist manosphere and then it kind of merged or became a racist alt-right sphere uh how how and when did that happen who who's like the the players in that in that um, happening well it's, it's funny that you brought up gamergate because i actually see gamergate as the last in quite a few pushes um of the general manosphere to uh, move to social media. Mm -hmm. um, there were several attempts before, most of which didn't really stick for whatever reason. Um, and I think they understood, you know, the significance of social media um, and kind of what a sort of lightning rod it could be for um, expanding your audience, expanding your readership. Um, through things like um, Black Lives Matter and the Ferguson protests, um, I uh, imagine that, um, which, you know, social media was obviously a huge player in that um, and made these global news stories. Um, I think they were looking for uh, something similar. So what's really funny is in uh, the few months running up to the Gamergate hashtag first being used, there are several moves um by various different kind of anti-feminist factions um to get a hashtag going um and some of these are kind of uh i suppose more what we'd kind of call just 4chan trolling uh so they you know try doing things like end father's day um oh, I remember that. yeah i remember that and <laughs> um like uh, there was one i think the hashtag white women can't be raped um, you know, they're sort of trying. That, they're yeah. sort of experimenting, basically, with social media um, as a uh, as a tool, as a tool of kind of outrage and, and spreading um, your message further. Um, obviously, those kind of they sort of sink like a stone, really. You know, they kind of get a few BuzzFeed articles about them, um, and it, they just kind of really can't gain that momentum. Um, next, you get things like hashtag Women Against Feminism, which I think lasted, you know, a week or so. Um, but again, was quite difficult to actually galvanize a movement around. Um, it had good ideas like you know, getting people to put selfies with a sign saying, you know, I don't need feminism and stuff, which is, yeah, um, I remember a few of those, yeah, which is kind of good, um, good social media tactics essentially. Um, but it doesn't work because, um, you know, they're all, all these signs are saying stuff like, um, I'm a woman and I don't have any issues, I, my life's fine which is quite difficult to actually get people uh, invested in, you know? Um, mm. And especially they're all kind of, quite a lot of them are focusing on their uh, presence as an individual, which is why they, they don't need feminist, you know, kind of collective action and stuff like that. Um, 
and uh, it's 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 a, a sort of good idea and it lasts a bit longer but it doesn't quite stick and it dies down um and then i think yeah i think they kind of just struck gold with gamergate it brought lots and lots of them online um it had this revolving as a story it had this revolving cast of um antagonists you know heroes and villains there was always new stuff happening because they centered themselves around gaming journalism which is um a really vast industry which is always churning out content um so you've always got a new thing to react to there's always something new happening you've also got this goal which is to sort of end feminism in video games which is never going to happen but it gives every everybody something to strive for do you know mm. um so it keeps everyone invested that way while giving them little victories um and it networks a lot of these uh disparate sites as well as bringing in new readership um people who you know were only on social media sites um and probably um you know held some kind of i suppose what we call like soft anti-feminist attitudes uh nothing particularly codified into kind of any sort of um, ideology um, and introduces them to those people um, and so you got, you kind of create this uh, I suppose a community is not really the right word but you create this network um, and it's a great way to transmit ideas um, and it's also a great way to transmit um, I suppose slightly more extreme ideas because um, on lots of these sites that they're using like reddit um, and Twitter, um, extreme, I suppose, uh, very, very angry posts or very, um, or worse, uh, posts that are made in the kind of harshest possible terms, um, garner attention. They get, you know, um, that people are excited by that. It's, um, more exciting than, um, people who put things in very bland sort of language. Um, and so they kind of, I suppose, develop this, um, shared language and naturally um there are you know people who uh i suppose hold some kind of antagonism towards feminism um i suppose in a kind of yeah i suppose i call it a soft anti-feminism before in quite a sort of um uh a quite an ordinary and everyday way mm. um might make the same kind of complaints to your friends in the pub do you know um not but there are also people who are antagonistic to feminism um because they think it's you know uh corrupting white womanhood and stuff like this and all of those people are merging together and talking with each other um and swapping language and ideas you know um and i think it essentially in creating this network um and uh particularly in um, particularly in uh, creating a um, real presence on YouTube um, where now you can have your kind of personalities that you've sort of been following through this interact with one another and then they're interacting with someone else um, and you, they're all doing interviews with each other and, you know, six or seven hour live streams and stuff like that. Um, it really becomes... Yeah, it becomes, um, I suppose, uh, much more coherent um, and much more lively uh, sphere to hang out in. Yeah, and one that the left hasn't kind of um, 
been able to replicate yeah, for all the uh, work no. people have been doing. They haven't yeah. been able to tap into that yet. Yeah, so. no, not yet. I mean, you know, I think um, we're seeing, I think, quite promising beginnings. Um, yeah, we, we're going to do it on the next episode. Next episode is the one where we create uh, the left buzz that we need to actually. <laughs> we promise. It'll be, it's next episode, <laughs> but it's only for Patreon subscribers. <laughs> but, um, yeah, pay to play. Yeah, exactly. You know, we, <laughs> yeah, we've still got bills to pay here. Hmm. So, so where is where is misogyny in 2019? Because from what I understand, and I'm not doing a PhD, but so this is just me looking at <laughs> yeah. posts. So, from what I understand, uh, this whole manosphere that became the alt right was hmm. energized by Trump, the Trump candidacy, primarily because um, he was. Uh, he triggered the libs basically yeah you know, they uh, smarter ones among them know he's an idiot and he will do mostly bad things but he'll be such a blundering idiot that he'll uh, either annoy people or he'll push yeah he, make, he makes the right people mad exactly yeah yeah and um but ever since he got in they because you know these are damaged um people who can probably never feel happy they are not satisfied with Trump, so they've decided that the, the world is now clown world, <laughs> and they have uh, ditched Pepe and Groper in order for to uh, adopt Honkler. Oh, I hate that I know this stuff. Yeah, I feel like you did such a cute little, yeah. cute little frog. Yes, adorable little clown, clown frog. I love him, <laughs> but um, but he's probably a Nazi. So, yeah. uh, but um, yeah. They've they've basically they've uh, clown pilled themselves and are now embracing just pure nihilism, mm. and they have no they have no ideas they have no thoughts at the moment. Occasionally, we get another one of these like trying to uh, start a hashtag or say that some other innocuous thing is actually a Nazi symbol, mm. but it, it always dies down because they announce it on a public forum like 4chan. Mm. And then, well, to be fair, we do also constantly have to tamp down with certain people where they're like, this thing is a white supremacist symbol. And be like, no, that that's that's like when they're like, uh, we got to add minor attracted people to the queer uh, to the queer terminology. And that's not real. 4chan's trolling you. You got to stop. Yeah. And they're like, it, what? No, it is. And be like, here's a screen cap. And they're like, you could have doctored that. Be like, which one's more likely? Like, what why would I do that? <laughs> yeah. There's always some some rubes who will fall for it. There probably was even with Ban Father's Day and stuff. But um, I think on the whole, people are getting better at spotting these things and you know they they all die on the vine pre in wrestling terminology, there works. Um, yeah. it, it's funny how well wrestling terminology actually works for um, more or less everything, really. Yeah, yeah. You got you got your works and you got your shoots and you got your shoots, your, your works that turn into shoots uh, <laughs> and shoots that turn into works. And you got your heels Damn. and your faces and it's it's all you got your heel turn. You yeah. got your face turn. Yeah. Um, like ContraPoints went from a for a face to a heel pretty quickly. Yeah. There. That um, I mean, that touches so on. Yeah. The left has attempted to like re recolonize slash decolonize, depending on how you want to view it. Um, YouTube and has done a really shit job on account of most of 
bread tube, which is a terrible name. They're like they're getting uh, ex- it from except, bread and ro- except for philosophy tube, um, who is my boyfriend. He doesn't know that yet, but he. Yeah, Ollie. Do you know, do you know why they're called why they're called bread tube? I never understood the the uh, etymology from, um, of that. It's from the the book, the conquest, the conquest of bread. Uh, no, no, that's what really? I thought, and that would oh. be a good reason. No, it's because of the bread and roses thing. Oh, I which is bread. I've been which is that for yeah. years. Right? No, see, no, you you did what I did, which <laughs> is we in good faith thought the smart thing and not the dumb thing, oh. and what. The, this world, Gareth, does not allow us the smart thing. It's always <laughs> the dumb thing. We are in clown world. They were right all along. Oh, and, uh, <laughs> I mean, we, we can also roughly touch on um, along the same line. I, I've been having some uh, half debates with people who are uh, even nominally leftists. I say nominally to zing them as hard as possible, who've decided to come out swinging against the big bugbear cancel culture, which is the left gone wild, which is more or less our version of when left wingers start turning right wing and start going, oh, those PC nut jobs. And it's like it doesn't do as much harm as you seem to think that it does. They're like, oh, I can't handle these feminists they hate women and it's like basically seeing the boomerization of people where Mm. uh, and we get this whinging specifically in the context of something like contrapoints it's like we're really gonna throw her out just because of some mistakes and it's like the ability to be self-critical and to critique a community and demand accountability and the next thing should be better like the next thing doesn't have to be perfect, but it should be better. And the thing after that should be better. And the thing after that should be better is the, the Deleuzian impulse that sort of defines leftism. Mm. Like the whole point is that it is progressive, that bit by bit it gets better. And you don't get that if you're like, no, we can't critique anyone at any time because they did a good thing one time. Like that's precisely the kind of stultifying and quite literally like definitionally conservative impulse that this is supposed to cut against that like yeah was capitalism better than serfdom sure should we stop because it was better than something that was one 700 years ago and too terrible no like what no is this is this it do you really think we don't have any better ideas at any point I mean, if anything, one of the most compelling arguments against something like Marxism-Leninism is precisely that we should remain open to the notion of creating a better ideology or a better system. I mean, hell, we even have the interjection of like Maoist thought into Marxism-Leninism as pretty much everyone in that world agrees that the thoughts of Mao in regards to third world countries responding to, say... Mm a world with America or Russia or Europe. Like what does a central African country need to do to attain a communist state when you aren't the industrial superpower of the world? It's like, oh, well, you need to nationalize your material resources and you need to, um, that we then suddenly, we, we turn this on social figures and in any capacity and suddenly any criticism is too much. And it's like, you've betrayed the cause of not wanting racism by telling this person that um, they did something wrong and should stop. Especially when people are asking for very mild things like, hey, um, contrapoints, um, acknowledge that 
you have a position that um, means that your words regarding, say, non-binary persons can be very harmful to them. And maybe you can even hold those thoughts, but maybe keep those specifically to yourself while dealing with other issues in your videos. And then when those very small things that people ask for are like, no, that's too much. I need a freedom of speech. And it's like, you sound like a right winger right now. This is exactly the kind of nonsense bullshit that like Sargon of Akkad does when it's like, don't say slurs on YouTube or you're going to get demonetized. And he's like, freedom of speech. I should be able to say the N word. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the key things to kind of that reaction in when it crops up on like moderately or ostensibly leftist people and as like the uh, driving force of all conservative to alt-right that whole side of spectrum is just childishness it's just i deal with this with my three-year-old all the time if i say put on your coat we're going out it's raining he will not want to put on his coat and it's and yeah they they do the exact same thing and they they can't really they never really hold themselves accountable for it how like any kind of minor infraction against them any kind of like no dial it down don't say that say this other thing it's always the end of the world it always requires a tantrum like uh i'm assuming you guys have seen paul joseph watson's latest tweet that is now getting him laughed at uh no i haven't is this, this, is this with the, the video with the woman serving with, beer? With, with the butt yes yeah with the, with the butt beer yeah, I've oh. seen so many conservative commentators share that video. I wouldn't probably wouldn't have seen it if I didn't follow so many right wing people. Do you know? And yeah, they, they do it. this. They did the same thing with a video of uh, uh, a young man at a protest somewhere. I can't even remember where. He was in very short shorts and he was twerking. Um, and again, it was just. It just sort of drives, it's so funny because they always share it and they're like, this is disgusting. I can't believe we have to see this in degenerate modern society, blah, blah, blah. And it's a bit like, well, I wouldn't have seen it if I didn't follow you. All of you keep on yeah. keep on sharing this stuff, do you know? Um, yeah. that, like a hundred people would have seen that butt beer video. But yeah. now Paul Josh Watson's put it out to like 10 million. And it is just like, I think this is a real kind of funny, I don't know. Uh, it's it sort of uh, these accounts provide their followers, I think, with guilt-free pornography. Mm, do you know? Yeah. Because they can they can look at these clips, which are you know sexualized and pornographic, and um, and they can think, well, it's fine because I'm I'm reading a, a tweet that condemns it while I watch. Um, this young woman's butt or this this guy dancing sexily, do you know? Um, yeah, I, d I do just kind of find it, um, yeah, kind of find it to be this kind of quite weird sight of sort of desire and kind of repression. Mm, yeah, and it's, um, yeah, something you don't get in Gilead. You know, they've, they've eliminated no. <laughs> all that. that. That woman has been stoned to death by now. And no one would, like, in... Gilead, you don't get like state TV putting out everyone look at this butt video, it's so terrible. It's got a butt in it, butts gross, poo comes out of them, it's terrible. <laughs> but, um, 
yeah, people like Paul Joseph Watson, these these kind of trad guys, they they need to be in our uh, depraved society because otherwise they can't get they can't get their thrill. They they, they need this uh, constant tension between their trad beliefs and the fallen world that they find themselves in. They they could they would last a day in Gilead because they'd just get bored. There's nothing. Yeah. To, there's no thrill in there. Yeah, I mean, I I agree. I think you know the kind of um the sort of supposed disgust is really part of the the kind of erotic appeal for a lot of it. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's just it just seems like quite a a funny impulse. Um, and yeah, I think it 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 kind of definitely speaks to the culture it's born in, which is the internet. Um, right where all of this kind of pornographic material is so easy to find um yeah, that you, you can like kind a, of a little bit you can't just go to Pornhub. you need, yeah. a, little, need a little bit extra you need a little yeah. spice from paul yeah. joseph watson yeah so you're you getting like forbidden politicized pornography channels which is yeah. supposedly kind of anti-degeneracy um <laughs> it's yeah kind of just quite a uh, uh yeah a kind of bizarre sort of like um way to kind of uh, uh, i suppose uh broadcast your traditional values so um yeah to to conclude um the right wingers are just horny <laughs> just, just some horny boys absolutely to... shocking who could have guessed <laughs> it's That's all it. sexual pathology at some point oh yeah it, it all comes yeah freud was mostly right about <laughs> um, especially about how you've got to do coke every day to be cool um but yeah so yeah annie where can people find you and uh where can they find your work um so they can uh find me on social media on twitter handle is annie k and k um my work is i published only published two articles because i'm supposed to be finishing up my phd in the next few months so that is taking um that's that's my first um, port of call in terms of writing at the minute. Um, but I published two articles. One is a academic piece for Soundings Journal, um, which is free to read, uh, called Reactionary Rehabilitation for White Masculinity. Mm -hmm. And the New York Times piece I wrote about Tradwives, um, which is more of a journalistic piece. They're both uh, published one to two years ago, so this stuff moves very fast and the curse of being an academic writing about this stuff is it's outdated six months later um oh, yeah, but if you'd like to read it then that's where you can find it mm -hmm. cool and yep you're also on q anon anonymous on, on occasion um yes yeah i do i drop in about once a month just to let them know what's happening uh in our little corner of the world uh the most recent episode i did for them was on boris johnson yeah um, it was really good <laughs> oh thanks i'm glad you yeah, liked I, it yeah. i yeah i discovered new new ways to hate him from that so, <laughs> yeah i've had people respond you. to me saying i think i sort of understand brexit now which i mean feels quite good because i'm not even sure i understand brexit so. no one understands brexit it's impossible <laughs> there's there, it's purely Bre a psychodrama it is no <laughs> meaning there's no con understand it it's yeah it's nothing britain watched you guys watched us lose our collective shit and then elect Trump and went, we can do that better. Yeah. Whole, <laughs> we can make an even more. <laughs> in it. 
we can make an even more inexplicable bad decision that no one can explain. <laughs> I think it's the other way around. You guys watched us lose our collective minds and vote for Brexit, and then you elected Trump. That did come first, actually. The it did. And that is true. I get. As always, we're the original. I, I keep I keep losing track of all these horseshit bad ideas because <laughs> the past three years have felt both like an eternity and one horrible blink of the eye. It's, it's clown world, man. We're on clown yes. world now. Honk honk, honk honk. Uh, it, so yeah, to cap off the episode, we're going to play something that is not in any way clownish. Although you could also argue that it, death metal is the most clownish thing. Or the black metal is the most clownish thing because they wear dumb clown makeup. But no, death metal is the most clownish thing. Uh, this is Coffin Rot, who I think are from Portland, Oregon, which makes sense because loads of great bands come from Portland. I don't know what they do there, but yep, loads of great bands coming out of that city. Uh, they're pretty new, only formed in 2017. They're on Blood Harvest Records out of Sweden. Uh, and this is their first album, got released like three days ago um it's called a monument to the dead and it's got really stupid grainy ugly cover with some zombies dissecting another zombie which seems completely redundant to me uh, but yeah it's just pure disgusting death metal nonsense i'm gonna play it's, a uh... Yeah, we, 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 I, I've gotten into uh, some hot water with people, including other musicians, when I refer to death metal as uh, fundamentally really fucking stupid. And I think these people are weak in their spirits because if they really love death metal in their hearts, they would know that that's a high compliment. That death exactly. metal is at its peak when it's either um, way fake smart like crazy fake smart like it's not actually smart but it it sounds like they think they're smart um or alternatively is just so fucking stupid yeah that's why we're gonna play a song called forced self-consumption just perfect so stupid so <laughs> stupid i love it absolutely the best so that's off uh, yep, Monument to the Dead by Coffin Rot. Uh, come back next week because uh, we'll to be talking to uh, Natalie Ola about her Repeater Books book, um, Steal Everything You Can. It's going to be a proper British episode. We're going to be talking about British stuff. Um, you know, for our 85% American audience, we're going to be going full into British culture next week. You're going to I'm going to have understand. to bone up on all kinds of. I'm going to be listening to so many Genesis records in order to try to understand you. That will do it. Yeah, that's that's pretty much. Yeah, you'll you'll get it. Off that is British days. culture. Yeah, yeah, very British. Just your your dad listening to Genesis in his Ford month. You you that's, love it. That, that's, that's that's how I found we, out what Wimpy's was. I thought I thought when he was talking about Wimpy Dreams, I was like, oh, he's zinging somebody. Then it was like, no, that's a grocery store. And I was like, wait, what? It's a fast food restaurant. Oh. That's yeah, yeah. Uh, Wimpy, your dad and his Ford Mondeo listening to Phil Collins. Uh, that's why we're Brexiting. That's what we've defended. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, here's Coffin Rock. Come back next week. Uh, honk, honk.